It's lovely to be with you again. The subject we're looking at are calling in Christ. And uh, I'd like us to read uh, a few verses from Romans. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 uh, to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that last verse, there is the phrase that we're going to look at this morning, called to be saints. Yesterday evening we had very good news. Our theme was called by grace. And as we think about good things, sometimes we ask ourselves, is it too good to be true? I'm sure you've realized that when you're looking at material you want to buy, different things, there's almost always a drawback in the small print. If you, li- if you pick it up and read it right down there, there was something that will disqualify you from having it or some other thing that, that puts you off having it. Is there something like that in this? Well, this phrase, call, call to be saints. We get it here in Romans 1.7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. You see it again in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Chapter 1, verse 2. What is this talking about, called to be saints? Are we being told here about a very special, holy people? A sort of people that you don't see very often, that are very unusual in their appearance, they're dressed differently, they're called to be saints. There's quite a famous painting in America in 1930. The title is The American Gothic. And it's a painting of two Iowa farmers. Uh, An elderly farmer and the, the younger woman who's his daughter. And there are five factors that characterize that picture of the man and his daughter. He's, he's holding a fork, uh, um, um, a, farm, a farm fork. He's holding a fork. And the thing that held them together, someone has said, are black clothes, long faces, somber expressions, Hard work, no fun. That's the picture of the farmer. Another American, H.L. Mencken, wrote this in the 30s. Puritanism is a haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. That was his sarcastic view of Puritanism. The strange, weird view that somebody, somewhere, may be happy. Well, now, we recognize these as distortions. But sometimes ourselves, we're a bit troubled when we hear of 
holiness. Being holy. It sounds rather off-putting. Rather frightful. We can almost think, if we're not careful, of holiness as a burden. A daunting enterprise. Perhaps even unwelcome. That person is very holy. We wonder what sort of a person is that. Certainly, we are called to be holy. A holy people. Over and over and over again in the Bible. So we need to be thinking straight about it. Not to be deceived, not to be making mistakes, but seeing it in truth. And friends, as we do so, we will see that not only does holiness not contradict good news, but it enriches good news. It is very much part of good news, called by grace to be saints. I'd like to look at it with you this morning under three parts. I'm trying to look for an outline of the outline in your it's in your book. You've got them there in your little book. Three parts. Thinking of holiness, what it means to be a saint. The present part, based on the word of Christ for us, a continuing challenge based on the work of the Spirit in us and a supreme blessing based on the image of Jesus in us. And we'll work through this outline this morning. First of all, holiness is a present fact. Holiness <coughs> is based not on ourselves, but it's based on the work of Christ for us. That's our holiness. Paul has never visited Rome. Not yet, when he writes this. There are many Christians there whom Paul has never met and he doesn't know. And yet, without qualification, he describes them to all those in Rome called to be saints. All of them. Every one of them. No exceptions. No members of the church who are all right, but they're not really saints. No. To all those, everybody in Rome, I haven't met them. But they're Christians. And if they're Christians, they're called to be saints. We see him even more surprisingly, perhaps, saying it about Corinth. Paul does know the Christians in Corinth. He's been in Corinth. He's seen the mistakes and the sins and the flaws and the damages in the church. He knows as he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.26 that there are not many wise. There are foolish and weak people. There are low and despised people. It's still a church with serious problems. Still people who are Christians, but they're falling short in many ways. And yet, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, all of them, all of them, without exception, are called to be saints. So the popular idea of a saint is therefore wrong. Churches are not composed entirely of spiritual giants. They're not composed entirely of people who are outstandingly good, wonderfully obedient, perfect almost in every way. In every church, there are ordinary Christians. As Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 1-2, 
all all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. These were the saints. Not mystics. Not people away up here in morality. Above everyone else. No. All of them. Every single person. Every believer in Christ. Everywhere. Is a saint. And is described as a saint. This is Paul's normal way of referring to believers. When he's writing to believers, he uses that word in the New Testament at least 38 times. The saints. The saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus. To all the saints at Philippi. To the saints at Colossae. The opening verses of those letters. So, friends, being a saint can't be something that we achieve. It isn't a sort of a good conduct award. It isn't a prize that you get. Oh, that person is a saint. No. It's given to us by God. It's not something that we're making, that we're creating, that we're doing. It's given to us by God. It is true of every single person in Christ. They're a saint. We could use as a parallel the word apostle. Paul tells us in the first verse of this letter that he's called to be an apostle. He doesn't mean that this is a goal towards which he is striving and working and hoping that someday he will reach the target to which his his Lord has called him. No. He is an apostle because the Lord called him an apostle. And so when the Lord calls us saints, we are saints. We don't achieve it. We don't win it. We're not rewarded by it. It is something God is doing. In fact, it's, it's interesting in, in, in verse 7. In Greek, the little words to be are out. They're not there. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. That's who they are. This links with another aspect of calling. It doesn't just mean to someone or to to invite but it means as we know to give a name to to call someone that's the name you're giving them what's that child called and you tell them Genesis Genesis 2.19 whatever the man called every living creature that was its name calling was giving a name to The name in the Bible wasn't just a sort of a verbal tag that is added on to you. It refers to the identity. A man was called a farmer. He was a farmer. A man was called a pastor. He was a, he was a pastor. By calling people prophets, God said they were prophets. He was making them prophets. The change of name is a change of status. It's a change of who you are. Romans 9.25 Those who are not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved I will call beloved. In other words as soon as I call her beloved she is beloved. As soon as I call her one of my people, she is one of my people. As soon as I call someone a saint, that person is a saint. And that's what he's saying But everybody in his church. It can almost mean to create. Romans 4.17 God calls into existence the things that do not exist. He calls into existence the 
the things who do not exist. And as he calls them, they exist. Isaiah 43 verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. The two words are used as meaning the same thing. To call someone is to create it. So that if we're called saints, God has created us and we are saints. We're called saints because that is what God, through Christ, has already made us. We're not working for it. We don't hope we'll try to earn it or win it. God has made us a saint. And that's who we are. Let's move in another direction for a minute. The word holy in the Old Testament firstly means separated or set apart. That's its basic meaning. God is holy because he's unique. He's separate from creation. He's without parallel. He's set apart. And that's why in the Old Testament you, 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 we, we find ourselves reading that a certain mountain is holy. What does that mean? It's a very good moral mountain. No. God has set it apart and it's there he'll meet with the prophets. Certain dishes are holy. Certain plates and mugs are holy. What does that mean? They're used in the temple. They're set apart by God. Certain people are holy in the Old Testament. The priests, because they're set apart by God. The emphasis in what God has done to the person, not what the person's doing, not what the plate or the animal's doing. No, no. It's God action. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That means he has set them apart as his people. That's what Paul means by saints. In 1 Corinthians 1-2 he says, Sanctified in Christ Jesus. God has set us apart. He's taken us out of Adam. He has given us a new covenant representative. He has put us into Christ. His holiness is imputed with us. And he's now dealing with us on a regular, on an entirely new basis. He has set us apart, his people. He deals with us on an entirely new basis. We are in a different category to the rest of humanity. Set apart, holy. We are definitively unalterably set apart my people my people and friends that is our opening point today holiness in this sense is a present fact it is true of every Christian it is equally true of every Christian it is true equally of the little young girl who has genuinely trusted in Christ and the man in his 80s who has been a great father in the church they're both holy they're both set apart by God to be his and the word is equally true of them whether or not we feel it it is there whether or not we, we feel sometimes we don't look like it. We don't appear to be very holy. But we're using it in the wrong way. One writer's put it this way. You like it if you enjoy grammar. It's not a subjective experience. It's an objective reality. 
be holy is not an experience, a subjective experience that you feel, that you know, that you enjoy, that you practice. At this point, that's not what holy is. Holy is an objective reality. God has appointed his people as what he calls holy. And it's enormously important to realize this, to believe this, to grasp how momentous a change has taken place, to understand how final, how decisive is our salvation. God refers to us as his holy people. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into condemnation, but he has passed from death to life. It's permanent. Do we know by grace, who we are. We're called saints. We need to reflect that and worship God through it. It's wonderful. But friends, this certainly doesn't exhaust the idea of sainthood. It brings us to a second point. Certainly, it is a present fact based on the work of Christ for us. But then secondly, it is a continuing challenge based on the work of the Spirit in us. As I said a few moments ago, the little words to be were not in the original Greek but they were in the meaning in a sense and they're good theology and they're well added to be saints we are called to become in practice what we already are in status let me say that again we are called to become in practice what we already are in status to become in our experience and in our character what we already are before God we have been separated from the world for God and it's appropriate that we live in a way which demonstrates the reality of this new relationship Again, something that comes up quite often in our commentaries, and very useful. People talk about the pattern of biblical ethics moving from the indicative to the imperative. Sorry about this. Moving from the indicative to the imperative. The indicative means a statement, an ordinary statement of a fact. Imperative is a command telling you to do so. And again and again in the Bible, that's always the order. We're told what the fact is, and then we're told what we must do. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the fact. That's the fact. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me that's the imperative here's what I've done now here's what you're to do because of what I've done it's built on it, it rests on it it's a very nice way of looking at our lives so Israel was already holy through the exodus and in giving the commandments God was telling them now to learn how to live it out you're a separate people. Now here's the way you will live as a separate people. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. We read it well in First Peter 
as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Those are the two aspects. We've been called by God to be his. Now we're to live because we're his in a different way. This is the purpose of God calling us his people. To make us like himself. Reflecting him in our beings and in our lives. In this world. In the world to come. To be mirrors of his glory. This I have done for you. Now live it out and become more like it. It's a continuing challenge. It's a challenge, isn't it? To grow in holiness. It demands commitment. It calls on our energies. It needs our devotion. It's a challenge. It's also continuing because there's no quick fix there's no instant holiness you can't arrive at a thing like that it's the process of our whole lives to give ourselves up becoming what in Christ we are grace it's a work of grace and we have been looking and we will be looking at holiness in a warm, welcoming light. What a beautiful thing it is that we become like Jesus Christ. And that is our calling. We are regarded as his children. We are regarded as definitely going to heaven. Now we are to live more and more in the way that that would be appropriate for such a person. But friends, there's something we must never forget. We must never forget that the stark cross is at the heart of Christian growth. A cross is at the heart of Christian growth. We are followers of Jesus. Our pattern in life is that of Jesus. He died and he was resurrected and renewed. That is our pattern. Let me quote the Catechism again. Number 35. Sanctification. Becoming holy. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby, renewed in the whole man after the image of God, here it comes. We are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's the pattern. To die unto sin, and to live unto righteousness. That's the way we're to live every day in our lives. To keep doing it, to keep doing it. To die unto sin, and live unto righteousness. A hundred times a day, to die unto sin. To making ourselves, to leading ourselves, to praying that the Lord will help us to die unto sin, to die unto sin. No matter how long you're a Christian, you'll still have to die unto sin many times each day. And then in doing that, we live unto righteousness. Paul mentions in, 1 Corinthians, in Colossians 3, 5, he talks about our, our need to put to death what is earthly in you. Puritan writer John Owen writes this The choicest believers who are assuredly free from
from much condemning power of sin. Completely free from the condemning power of sin. Ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. You see what he says? He puts sin in two categories. The condemning power of sin and the indwelling power of sin. And he says, the condemning power of sin has been dealt with. Has been dealt with when we came to Christ. All our sins were pardoned. We're cleansed of them. The condemning part, we won't be condemned. But we still have to wrestle day by day with the indwelling power of sin. And we have to seek to put it to death. We can't blunt the cutting edge of this challenge. We can't turn it into something cute or cool or comforting. The Lord himself puts it very clearly in Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what I would say. Take up his cross daily. To the end of our lives, we take up our cross daily. We turn against sin. We put ourselves against sin. And I think, and I'm pretty sure that there's nothing more neglected today in churches than this serious, detailed quest for holiness. Now, we can laugh at Puritans who are caricatured. We see odd, odd pictures of Puritans, which is not what they were. We can sneer a little bit about the fundamentalists with their full surrender theology and their strange sinlists, absurd. And we can say we're reformed, we're more theologically astute, we have a developing world and life view. But friends, are we dealing with this daily challenge to be holy men and women? We're called to be saints. Does that guide you every day? Does that guard you? Does that energize you? I'm called to be a saint. I'm called to be a saint. And I'm recognized by God. And then he wants me to live it out day by day. You remember Joseph, a man of God, received by God, and he knew that was true. He says in Genesis 39.9 regarding his master's wife who was tempting him, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's put this way in Hebrews 12.14 Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. This is to be our full, real, conscious pursuit in our lives. We're not to deny one, but we're not to neglect the other. We have been received by God in our position, but then day by day, we work it out more and more. This verse that I've just quoted, strive for peace and for holiness, it refers to peace with everyone. It's not a coincidence. For it took me some time to, to make it, a, I think, a fascinating discovery. In the New Testament, saints is a plural noun. It's always saints. It's never saint. You'll not, need, you'll not find anywhere, I hope, after saying it, in the New Testament, the word saint in the single. Single. It's always saints. It's always saints. 
never sinned. That's, that's worth thinking about. We're a corporate people. We're a covenant people. We're the people of God. We're the body of Christ. I think it's a lovely balance to our first address yesterday. Who called me by his grace. That was a very personal deal. He called me. But then when he's talking about the saints, it's always the saints as a body of people. As a body of people. It's an antidote to individualism, which often infects even good churches. People in a lonely pursuit of solitary goodness. And it's not possible. For holiness is largely exercised in community. Relational. You know Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now if you were to think about it, every one of those needs somebody else. You can't keep them on your own. Somebody else has to be reflected in it or seen in it. Love. I'm very good at that because I love myself very much and I love myself all the day. Peace. I've got that commandment well. I never argue with myself at all. I'm in perfect peace. I mean, suppose you want patience, kindness. Oh, yes, I'm patient with myself. would never criticize myself. I want to be very... Is, is that the keeping of the commandment? No. Other people are involved. Other people are always involved. We need other people. The challenge, as I say, is not to go off and polish a halo in isolation. It's to become saints together. What a thrill it is. What a test. What a help. We know, don't we, how the two greatest commandments are linked. 1 John 4.20 speaks of, as we love our neighbor as ourself, we grow in love for God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Saints. Saints. As we grow, it's all of us together. Better not do any more Greek, but the, the word for church is God's called out body of his people. We're helping each other towards Christ-likeness. We're helping each other to grow and show God. And friends, is that not what the world, above all, needs to see? Is that not what the world doesn't see? Men and women and children who are committed to each other and committed to being like God, who are together. Surely for us, these days now will be days when we feel that the the life of heaven is coming here into these rooms, into this building, together. We're together. And then as we live together, we're sent out into the neighborhoods, the workplaces. And the church is saying to people in their communities, this is what we're like. If we respond to this challenge with everything in us, called to be saints, what may the Lord do through us? Called to be saints, the continuing challenge. But this brings us finally to what I think is a huge encouragement. The supreme blessing. The image of Jesus in us. The supreme blessing. 
The early caricatures have made fun of what being a, a severe Christian is. And yet, we may not go as far as that, but our idea of holiness can be curiously bland, without color, inhuman, boring. We're not good at imagining the holiness of saints. I'm not good at it. Imagining the holiness of saints. You know John, Wil John Milton, the great Puritan English poet. And it's sad in many ways. As he was writing one of his great poems, The Paradise Lost, Wilkham Milton became so fascinated by Satan that one scholar says Milton suggests admiration for this hero, this grand being who dared assault the throne of heaven. And so, although being a saint is a valuable thing, it's not always in us with a hunger which would lead us to pursue it with passion. Lord, help me to be a saint. It's elusive. But in the Bible, again and again, we see how it is God's being reflected and shown to us. And I think we need to fall in love with holiness. I think we need to know more about it. And fall in love with it. And I think a valuable way of doing that is knowing that it is planted in the Lord Jesus. It's what he was and who he was. Universally admired. And we're to ask ourselves, what sort of human was Jesus? What sort of human was Jesus? Holiness means being like him. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's a sense in which C.S. Lewis feels what he calls the intimations of holiness. Strange longings inside him. Desires. Wishes. Wanting to go. Wanting to do in certain places. And I think we all have it. We all have it. Every human being piercing, sweet, sad longings for things, awakening, satisfying yearnings in us. We go out walking in the hills with our friends. There's something about it. We sit at home and we look round the family. There's something about it some literature that when we read it we're touched and changed and moved and we don't really know why there's certain music and to hear it brings tears to our eyes stabs of longing for something transcendent something godlike something that we can't really explain but there's that within us which wants us, which wants it, which is longing for it. C.S. Lewis again in his book, The Weight of Glory, writes, It is a desire for our own far-off country. A scent of the flower we have not found. An echo of the melody we have not yet heard. 
It's a longing for a beauty, for a goodness. We can't define it. can't explain it. We've never yet really met it. But it touches us. It touches us. And friends, I think this is our hearts crying for the beauty of God, which is holiness. I think this is our hearts crying for the beauty of God, which is holiness. Psalm 27, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We sing that. What does it mean? How have we experienced it? Psalm 96, verse 6. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What do we mean? Isn't it true, probably, that to some extent our emotional life as Christians is damaged and stunted a bit because of our sinfulness and our failures. I feel that constantly about myself, disappointed in myself, upset about myself. I'm not who I want to be and I'm not who I would like to be. Love the Lord your God. You get it in the Psalms. Psalm 116, I love the Lord. Psalm 18, I love you, Lord. Psalm 63, my soul is a thirst for you, loving you. Or the Song of Songs. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Arise, my love, my beautiful one. My beloved is mine, and I am his. This is holiness. This is holiness. The dazzling, heart-wrenching beauty of God, which we are to reach for. Exodus 28.2 You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. The Covenanter Samuel Rutherford writes, The beauty of God is the truth of God of the Lord's nature and all his attributes offered to the understanding and the mind and drawing out from them admiration and wondering and love. The beauty of the Lord is, our, is truth of the Lord's nature and his attributes and drawing from them admiration and wondering and love. See, what I'm saying in a way is holiness cannot be a contradiction of our humanity. Holiness cannot be saintliness cannot be a denial of our humanity. It, it is a renewal of our humanity. It is making us more human. We're made in the image of God. And so God-likeness involves being more human than we've ever been before. Made in the image of God. To be holy means to find ourselves fully for the first time. All of our potential coming to flower. The deepest needs satisfyingly fulfilled. To be holy. To be like God. And the calling to us in Christ is that he will bring us there. And he will make us that. Day by day. Year by year. This is the perspective in which we are to look at cross-bearing. At self-denial. We're seeking the beauty of the Lord. We're seeking to be more like him. I have a long illustration, but I understand from Joel that you all know it, so perhaps I'll not read it out. Do you know the story of the man who cut off his arm? 
There are some who don't. Let me find it. At 11 o'clock, this will take a little bit of time, but I think it's good. It's a newspaper. At 11 o'clock on the night of Friday, April the 25th, 2003, 27-year-old Aaron Ralston parked his truck at the Horseshoe Canyon Trailhead in southeastern Utah and slept. The next morning at 9.15 he bicycled 15 miles south until he reached a shortcut leading to the head of Blue John Canyon's main fork. He locked his mountain bike to a juniper tree and set out on foot towards the gulch. Saturday, April the 26th by 2.45pm Ralston had reached had started his descent into the deep narrow slot of the canyon passing over and then under boulders that clogged the three foot wide passage Ralston was negotiating a ten foot drop between two ledges when an eight hundred pound boulder shifted under him he pulled his left hand out of its path in time but his right hand was smashed between the rock and the sandstone wall after four days Ralston ran out of water realising he would die of dehydration dehydration no sorry since my brain was damaged I get words wrong he prepared to reckon with his last resort severing his hand with the blunt blade of his pocket knife essentially I got my surgical table ready and applied the knife to my arm and started sawing back and forth but I didn't even break the skin I couldn't even cut the hair off my arm the knife was so dull he said on Wednesday he managed to puncture the skin but realised he wouldn't be able to cut through the bone by Thursday May the 1st growing weak and having passed through stages of depression hope and prayer Ralston decided he would have to break his arm near the wrist to extricate himself I was first able to snap the radius he calmly recalled and then within a few minutes snap the ulna at the wrist and from there I had the knife out and applied the tourniquet and went, and went to work it was a process that took about an hour he sawed through the soft tissue between the broken bones and amputated his hand all the desires, joys of a future life came rushing into me. Maybe this is how I handled the pain. I was so happy to be taking action. Ralston rigged his rope, set his anchors, rappelled 60 feet to the floor of the canyon and hiked five miles downstream, supporting the bloody stump of his right arm in a makeshift string sling he ran, he ran into three hikers from Holland who gave him urios and water and helped him carry his pack another mile at 3pm he was finally rescued by a helicopter which had begun searching for him when friends worried because he hadn't shown up had called the authorities flown first to Allen Hospital in Moa Moab, Utah he walked on aided off the helicopter to a waiting team later that day he was transferred to St. Mary's Hospital where he underwent the first of several surgical procedures to prepare his right arm for a prosthesis three days later a, a team of 13 rangers trekked into the can canyon to retrieve, to retrieve Rolson's hand 
using a hydraulic jet, jack, and a grip hoist. It took them an hour to lift the boulder. He says later, Having gone to the depths of coming to accept I could very well die, and then seeing the light of being able to get out, it didn't even occur to me to dwell on the painful side of the experience. It brought him to life. And when that was happening, he didn't care about the pain. It was healthy pain. It was good pain. It was the best purpose. It wasn't a sacrifice. It was the greatest gain. And we're not saying that holiness isn't easy. But we're not saying it's a scary gift. God is rather like a faithful dentist. He's going to heal us and he's going to cause pain in the process. But it is evidence of his love. <coughs> Loved by God and called to be saints. His purpose is to make us like himself. It's a bit, when we think about it, it's a bit like called by grace yesterday. I think it should make us want to shout and sing. We're called to be saints, to be perfect, godly beings. And we will be. We will be. That's the best of all. It's going to happen. It's not a quest for the unreachable. It's not programmed to fail. The certainty of our present status guarantees the certainty of our future character. We come back to calling. It's not just a summons, a challenge. It's a creative word. It's an unbreakable promise. You shall be holy. For I am holy. That's the promise. Another story, and you may have heard this one too, was of a converted thief in Japan. He finally had been released. He'd served his sentence. And he had become a Christian. And he was very worried about breaking sin again. He didn't know what to do. How could he stop? How could he be kept from committing sin? And in his worry, he walked one day into a church building. And they had ten commandments written on the wall right round the building. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, and so on. And this man, to whom the Bible was new, thought that these were not commands, but promises. Promises. You will not kill. You will not steal. You'll have no other God. And really, so they are. They're commands. And they're promises. And you and I in Christ can take those commandments say, Lord, thank you that by your grace the day will come when these words will be perfectly true of me. Let us take our stand in Christ where God has placed us now. Let us give ourselves to bringing our holiness to completion in the joyful assurance that we shall come at last to our eternal destiny far beyond imaginings and desires far more wonderful far more beautiful than any of us can begin to think of for a second for as we read in 1 John 3 2 for we know that when he appears we 
shall be like him because we shall see him as he is we shall be like him that's God's promise to us this morning Amen